0: Let's take the scriptures and turn in them to the book of Habakkuk. In Habakkuk chapter three. You go if you don't know where Habakkuk is, that's I think backwards from Matthew is Malachi, Zephaniah Zechariah, Haggai. Zephaniah, Habakkuk, I think, something like that, going backwards. And so it's a few chapters before the Gospel of Matthew, the end of the Old Testament. Habakkuk chapter 3, and we will be reading the whole chapter. And uh, keep your Bibles open during the sermon, at least at the beginning We'll look uh, at the context, so we'll look at chapter 1 and chapter 2 as well, so be ready to look there, but let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, gracious Father, once again we plead for your mercy now, that you would not give us what we deserve, but you would grant to us by your grace the very word of life, a life would be given to our souls, our wills, our affections, our mind, our bodies. And that we would live for you and honor for you and in all things rejoice in the Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. These are God's words. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Shigenoth. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years make known in wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. And his brightness was as the light, he had horns coming out of his hand, and there was the hiding of his power. Before him went the pestilence, and burning coals went forth at his feet. He stood and measured the earth, he beheld, and drove asunder the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow, his ways are everlasting." I saw the tents of Cushan and affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea that thou didst ride upon thine horses and thy chariots of salvation? Thy bow was made quite naked. According to the oaths of the tribes, even thy word, Selah. Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. The mountains saw thee, and they trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of thine arrows they went, and at the shining of thy glittering spear, Thou didst march through the land of indignation. Thou didst thresh the heathen in anger. Thou wentest forth with the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation unto the neck. Selah. Thou didst strike through with his staves the head of his villages. They came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. Thou didst walk through the sea with thine horses, through the heap of great waters. When I heard, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with His troops. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, but there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and He will make my feet like hinds feet and He will make me to walk upon mine high places. To the chief singer on my strained instruments. Those are God's words. You might not understand very Uh, You might not understand anything that we just read very well, except for maybe the last few verses, but we'll get to that and all of it. You know that when uh, times are good, there's cause for great rejoicing in the Lord. When the economy or your work, your business, your home life, your family, the church, when things are going well... That, of course, is cause for rejoicing and thanking the Lord. There are some things today, however, that we might describe as not going well. And perhaps that's closer to you in your marriages, your family life. may have been a great struggle for you recently. Perhaps the church, the people of God have brought affliction to you. And of course you see the deterioration of our society as continues in rebellion against Christ the King. And that has effects and has consequences now to every aspect of society. And there are wars and rumors of wars. And this affects the church sadly as well, even though it ought not. It affects the church. And so we have to ask the question today, and if we could imagine in the future things are worse for us, we have to ask the question then, or thinking of then, is there cause to rejoice? Before, and in the good times, and today when things are worse. What about also like today when the church is lukewarm, generally speaking, and turning from the Gospel more and more, turning from God and His Word more and more, when the ungodliness of the Bride of Christ abounds and the worship of God doesn't look like worshiping Jehovah, but looks like worshiping man and entertainment and being uh, entertained? Is there cause to rejoice then? Think of the prophets, is there cause to rejoice then? What about when things get much worse than this? And Christians are continually and consistently beaten and slaughtered and thrown in jail, like happens throughout the world in some places. What about then? And even here, what about then? Will there be cause to rejoice Hear now the admonition that has come down to you from the Lord. He says to you, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. He says in 2 Corinthians 6, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. There is reason, there is warrant for you to rejoice, church, even when times are times of sorrow and suffering and affliction. When we celebrated the Lord's Supper this morning, which declares Jesus' death, His redeeming love, and as we celebrated His death, considering the agony, the gruesome agony, the suffering He went through in His human body, we celebrated, we feasted, We rejoiced in that sacrifice of Christ for us, and we love Him. And why did we rejoice? Because Christ is the Redeemer of His people. And that's not just glossing over the reality of what is here today, or what we're going through today, why your heart or soul might be downcast. And if things get worse, we'll still celebrate the Lord's Supper, Lord willing and rejoice in our Savior. And that will not be if things are worse. That won't be deluding ourselves or just uh, gritting the teeth to get through it when things are desperate. Rather, it is completely warranted and grounded rejoicing in the truth. The book of Habakkuk is all about faith. Chapter 1 is about the struggle of faith. Chapter 2 is about how faith is necessary or the necessity of faith. And here in chapter 3, we see the prayer of faith that is produced to us through a song. In chapter 1, things are not going well. And we are aware of what's happening for Habakkuk because Judah, we know in Isaiah and learned other prophets as well, Judah is rebelling against Jehovah. And Habakkuk says in verse 2 of chapter 1, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and Thou wilt not hear? Even cry unto Thee of violence, and Thou wilt not save. That makes us question, why are we not crying much, if at all, for the Lord to save His people? When we see how Habakkuk is praying. Habakkuk is doing it constantly while seeing nothing happen. He's praying and pleading constantly to the Lord to save His people. He doesn't see any answer from the Lord. And so there's a struggle in his faith. There you see it in verse 2. But it instructs us, why are we not pleading and crying out for the Lord to save His people? To save this nation and the nations of the world? When they are rebelling, when the church is rebelling against it, why are we not crying out all the more? And the rest of chapter 1, the Lord comes back and says, I am doing something. I am going to do something about it. He's going to judge Judah. And the instrument that He will use to judge Judah, we know... Or the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. But then another question comes up because of that. If the Lord uses the foreign, wicked, evil people of the Babylonians to judge His covenant people for Him, what about the Babylonians? They're wicked. So, verse 12, He cries out, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? We shall not die, O Lord. Thou hast ordained them for judgment, and, O mighty God, Thou hast established them for correction. Thou art of pure eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest Thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest Thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he. He's saying... He grasped the, the judgment of Judah and why it must come, but he's in that as well. But what about Judah? They're wicked. They're evil. How can they devour the people who are more righteous than they, even though they were rebelling against Jehovah? In chapter 2, he waits for the Lord's answer, which comes in verse 2. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon the, on tables that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie, though it tarry. Wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. The Lord answers there. Write the answer in such large letters plainly, so even the one who runs by can read it and see it like we would say today, like a billboard or some very large sign with large letters, so that even the one who runs by can read it. Because even though the answer will not come immediately, he's saying here, it will come. And so make it known. And then verse 4, he says, Behold, his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. His soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. He's speaking there of one who is not upright. He's vulnerable, filled with pride, and though it seems like he is right and good in time, he will be reduced to nothing. But the just shall live by his faith. And that verse there quoted in Romans Galatians, establishing, giving more light to the doctrine of justification. And then after this in chapter 2, the Lord shows that He will show Babylon, that He will judge the pride of Babylon, just like He just said there in verse 4. He will judge the pride of Babylon, and He will do so on His covenant people's behalf. Verse 17, "...for the violence of Lebanon shall cover thee, and the spoil of beasts which made them afraid." because of men's blood and for the violence of the land, of the city, and of all that dwell therein. He would judge on behalf and view of Judah and what they did for His people. The Lord will judge for His own glory, verses 18 through 20. And verse 20 says in comparison to the idols, but the Lord is in His holy temple, let all the earth keep silence before Him. And then chapter 3. So he's going to deal with Babylon justly. And Babylon, before that, is going to judge Judah for him as his instrument, but they'll be judged because of it. So Judah and Babylon will be judged. Chapter 3 is a song. You see that? We know that because of the very last half of the last verse and how it uses the word Selah a couple times there. Reminding us of that, just like in the Psalter. And people will then argue, well, there are other songs in Scripture besides the Psalms. Therefore, we can sing man made songs. Right? And that, of course, is foolish. It's foolish, for the fact remains that the song here was not designed to be sung by a worshiping people of God. And above all things, it is an It is not an uninspired hymn. It is inspired by God. It is God's very Word, not man-made. And that's important because people use that argument, right? That, well, here's another song in Scripture that's not the Psalms, and therefore we can make our own songs. No, you've gone a little bit too far in that logic. Because God, throughout the Scriptures, Chronicles, we studied this as well, That it has to be one who is a prophet, who writes the words of the Psalter, words of the Psalms, of the songs we sing, and so it can't be man made. It has to be inspired. Furthermore, in this case, parts of chapter three are actually quoted in the Psalms. And in Psalm sixty eight and eighteen Psalm 18, where God has given His people a songbook to sing, to use to sing His praises in public worship, in family worship, and private worship. The Psalter is the permanent compilation and collection of inspired, inspired songs for the permanent use of the, the church for singing praises unto God. And that's why often songs in the Scriptures, parts or all of them, are also found where? In the Psalter. Like the song of Moses. And some are completely excluded from the book of Psalms, for they are not what God has set forth for the church to sing. But now looking at our passage again. Consider first your fears. Your fears is the first point. Your fears. Verse 2 in chapter 3. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years make known in wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk has heard the word of the Lord, and he is afraid of what the future holds. And that teaches us that God's people do struggle with fear. God's people do struggle with fear, and we can relate to that because if we have heard God's Word faithfully the past few years here even, uh, we have heard of the Lord's judgments that should be upon rebellious nations and even the churches that are rebellious and His people who are rebellious. The church that turns from Him as the broader church has done. What does that mean for us, God's people? We plead that He would show mercy and withhold His judgments for a time, that He would send His Holy Spirit in revival and revive the church, that they would turn again to Him. But we also know that it may be the Lord's will, as we pray, to destroy this nation. And we need to, we need to realize that he, it may be His will to destroy the United States of America completely, and have it never be again. As well, He may do that soon. That can happen. He's done that with many great nations, all great nations in the scriptures that we have read about, whether it's the Babylonians here, the Assyrians, the Greeks, the Medes and Persians, the Romans, they've been destroyed. And that can happen if we considered that well, considered and examined that well, that may make us fearful. Fearful. Now, you might even have a greater measure of God's grace. And so you understand, you accept that it—that that is what may happen. If it's God's will, it will happen. Praise God, you have that greater measure of grace to understand that. And yet there's still in you some part of you, since you have had all of your life, predominantly most of all of us, all of your life, a blessed life on this earth and a prosperous one for most of you. And if you are um, have a greater measure of grace, you know, even if you've been poor, even if you've been without many of the things of ease in this world, you know that you have been blessed and lived a prosperous life on this earth in Christ. And there is, if we know that all those things can be taken away from us, the building that we worship in, or we'd have to worship outside even in the winter or in the heat of summer, or our homes, to be dispersed from our homes, be homeless. There is some fear, or a lot of fear, in that, to consider that. The fear if all those niceties and the possessions and homes and jobs are taken from you there is fear in what the Lord may do. Even though you know His Word, you know it might be His will, and it is His will to judge wicked nations and rebellious nations, and that might be brought upon you and affect you. You know the truth, and yet also you have fear in your heart about what the Lord says. 1 Corinthians 2, the Apostle says, I was with you in weakness, and in fear, and in much trembling. 2 Corinthians 7, For when we were come into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. It's in a sense a believing fear that we're talking about here. There could be other fears as well as sinful fears. Uh, believing fear, or because you're believing, there comes then sinful fear. For it extends from believing what God has said. You believe what God has said, at least in in part, what He said in our passage, verse two. He says, "I have heard Thy speech. I've heard You, Lord Jehovah. I've heard You. I believe what You say." And I am afraid. He was afraid. A greater faith would overcome even this fear based upon all that God has said. In the moment, Habakkuk had believed what God had said, and he is afraid. This fear of Habakkuk teaches us realism. The Word of God teaches us that the Lord's cause will flourish in the earth, that the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, but we don't know when. There could be fearful judgments upon our ungrateful, hard-hearted, gospel-despising, covenant-breaking nation before such a time comes. And in the church which has continuously rebelled against Him, there could be great judgments against such cold-hearted, hard-hearted, gospel-despising, covenant-breaking people who are against the Lord. And that may involve us or affect us and we might be part of that and so we have to examine our hearts and that even before the great number turn to the Lord as he's promised we must face the facts that that is possible and you must know friends that Jehovah can judge this nation he can judge the church and he can judge any nation he can judge any congregation that he so chooses And this nation is more wicked than many nations upon which God has sent great trouble and affliction because of our privileged past. Yes, our nation has a privileged past. uh, Covenant privileges, we could say, because the Word of God has been among this nation for centuries since its founding. It's not saying that this nation is Christian. It is not. It has never been a Christian nation. But the Word of God has been proclaimed. And the God of Scripture has been worshipped throughout all the time of this nation. And before. Over generations, the Gospel preached. And all this has been despised. And the work of Reformation is treated... With contempt, even in the church. And those famous preachers of today are those who can dismantle the heritage that has been, has come down to us and overthrow the word of God. We have to face the reality when that's possible and that, that happens that, that the Lord does threaten nations such as ours in scripture. And so here is the prayer of the prophet that the Lord would revive his work in the midst of the years, and that is the years of captivity or exile. He doesn't pray the Lord would shorten the period of the exile because that time he knows knows is fixed. It's an appointed time. There's a, a recorded in scripture how long this will be. And he pleads that the Lord would not altogether though hide his face from the church, from his people. And so Habakkuk submits to the divine Correction, like Daniel, in Daniel 9, says there that, therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us, as they're in Babylon, for the Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he doeth, for we obeyed not his voice. And so even Daniel, though he's righteous in exile, with Judah being affected in the consequences of Judah's, the covenant people of God's rebellion, He's receiving the consequences of that, though he is righteous. And he's submitting to the divine correction. And the prophet prays here for a reviving of the church in the exile. That the light of God's truth would remain, being evident and not blotted out. And the Lord did what? He answered that prayer in raising up Daniel... And uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, to encourage the people of God the faithfulness to the Lord in that time. You have fears. Well, I have fears. Habakkuk had fears. Now secondly, remembering what God has done. Just like Philippians 3 verse 1, remembering what God has done. Verse 3 to verse 15, we are given a, a lesson in church history. Church history extends to the Old Testament, by the way, all the way to Genesis. And so here we have a lesson in church history. Verse 3, Temon, here speaking of the Edomite mountain territory in the south, and Mount Paron is a uh, mountain near Mount Sinai, and as we learn in Deuteronomy 33, and here he says, God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. So He's rehearsing in the wilderness. All the Lord taught His people by His Word as He testified of His covenant with His people and promised to be their God. That's what he's bringing up there in verse 3. Verse 4, And His brightness was as the light... He had horns, describing power. He had horns coming out of His hand, meaning that the Lord has a strong hand. And there was the hiding of His power. This is a glimpse of God's might and power and greatness. He showed His glory in part as He unveiled His backside, a little of Himself there at Mount Sinai to Moses, right? In the cleft of the rock. Verse 5, Before Him went the pestilence, And burning coals went forth at his feet. Speaking of one of the plagues, he sent upon Egypt. And so that the Lord shone with great might, able to afflict Egypt, a foreign nation, as he pleased. Egypt. He's able to afflict Egypt, a foreign nation, while he can afflict Babylon too. Habakkuk. And to us. uh, This one. uh, Look at verse 6. He says, "...he stood and measured the earth." He beheld and drove asunder the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. And here He's talking about the entering in of His people into Canaan in Joshua. The Lord measuring the land of Canaan, driving out the inhabitants so that He could give this land to His people. So He's driving out these inhabitants, the Canaanites, right, the Hibbites, the Perizzites, etc., right? to such an extent He's going to drive them out. Even the mountains are scattered. The hills bow down to Him. The Lord is so terrible in His dealings with His enemies, even at Jericho, Ai, and on and on. He drove them all out of the land to make, to make it an inheritance for the children of God and for Israel. All were scattered before Him. Verse 7, it says, I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction, speaking of Ethiopia, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. This one, the Lord gave victory to his people, and anguish came upon them as they heard what the Lord was doing for his people. Verse 8, was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea that thou didst ride upon thine horses and thy chariots of salvation? Now we could think of the book of Revelation, but we are thinking here of church history, not the future. The rivers, the Jordan parted by God for his people to cross the Red Sea, the same. All to save his people. Verse 9. Thy bow is made quite naked, according to the oaths of the tribes, even thy word, Selah. Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. The bow, the weapon of war, made ready for use, according to the Lord's word, His covenant promises that He would take them into the promised land, and He did. And He used the weapons of war to bring about victory as well. The end of verse 9 is just like Numbers 20. Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. And so remembering what God has done in the past. In verse 10, the mountains saw thee and they trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. And Moses lifted up his hand and with his rod he smote the rock twice and the water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their beasts also. Verse 11. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of thine arrows they went and at the shining of the glittering spear. And Joshua ten the sun standing still for God's people. If you remember that. Verse 12. Thou didst march through the land of indignation. Thou didst thresh the heathen in anger. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundedst the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation unto the neck. So he goes out. He goes forth with His anointed, Joshua, as a type Joshua as a type pointing us to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The wounds, wounds His enemies, even to the neck. And they conquered the land. Verse 14 represents how the wicked judged themselves, which we see an example of this in Judges 7. It says, verse 14, Thou didst strike through with His staves the head of His villages. They came out as a whirlwind to scatter Me, their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. And then verse 15. Thou didst walk through the sea with thine horses, through the heap of great waters. And there the Lord pictured as a man of war going forth for the deliverance of his people. What does this teach us? Verses 3 through 15. He's rehearsed for us the history of Israel in the major parts and some of the major parts of church history for, uh, uh, from before the time of Habakkuk, all that Habakkuk knew of. And so Habakkuk, the Lord working through Habakkuk, rehearses the history of the church. So what does that teach us? It teaches us that just as Habakkuk, so the Lord reveals to him uh, the, Habakkuk, the history of what He, Jehovah, had done for His people. And so it teaches us, just like Philippians 3.1, it teaches us to review the acts of God. The works of God for our strengthening. We're meant to consider the works of the Lord. Only fools ignore them. Only fools don't read the scriptures. Daily. Only fools do not, uh, or only fools whine and complain and grumble even in the church when they hear the same thing. One Lord's Day to the next. If, if this is true of the Lord's dealings with His people in general, how much more is it true of the fact that God has spoken in these last days by His Son? And if He spared not His own Son, as we heard this morning, but delivered Him up for us all, will He not also with Him freely give us all things? If Habakkuk reviews the works of the Lord that had taken place up until His day, how much more should we reflect upon all these things, and especially the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ? And we're commanded specifically... To remember that work of Christ in the Lord's Supper, for as oft as ye drink, or as oft as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, he do show forth the Lord's death till he come. And he says, this do in remembrance of me. To remember what the Lord had done even in Christ. And so we must remember the works of the Lord as marvelous in our sight to encourage our faith even in the midst of our fears. To look through church history, not, not merely uh, 100 A.D. to the present. I'm talking about in the Scriptures. Uh, we can also look the church history after that, but predominantly looking at the Scriptures to see what God has done in His history for His people. And so remembering what God has done. That's what Habakkuk does in the Lord's guiding and that's what we ought to do. Even more so because we have Christ and He speaks now. And thirdly, overcoming fears in faith. Overcoming fears in faith. Verse 16 it says, When I heard, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble when he cometh up. Unto the people. He will invade them with his troops. Here, so you have verses 3 through 15. He, the Lord rehearses for him uh, and through him, uh, being inspired by God, uh, the history of the church, what God has done, all his great works of delivering his people. And now in verse 16, Habakkuk comes back to the present time and what God has said. He's going to judge Judah. Habakkuk agrees that's rightly to be done because Judah has rebelled against the Lord. Covenant people have rejected him. But he fears because the judgment is going to affect him and the Lord's going to use Babylon, a wicked nation, to do it. And so he goes over again his fears. He was sick with fear. His belly trembled contemplating what jehovah would do in judging judah and his covenant people by the babylonians the future fills him with fear but it doesn't stay that way outwardly nothing has changed when we are at verse 16 to the end of the chapter nothing's changed babylon is still coming judah is still going to be exiled and destroyed nothing's changed Verse 17, it says, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Nothing's changed. Judgment's still coming. Outwardly, it describes the effects of the Babylonian invasion, and things are going to be desolate. They would be desolate. But that hasn't changed from before, has it? That hasn't changed. That's what Habakkuk knew was going to happen. That's what Jehovah promised would happen. And yet, verse 18. Now he says something different. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. What changed? He looked and considered the works of the Lord. That's what changed. The greatness and the power and the might and salvation of God granted assurance and the everlasting purpose of mercy of the Lord. Of His mercy. And even though the land and God's people would pass through desolate times, the exile in Babylon would destroy them, He had great reason to rejoice in the God of His salvation. And so have you. If you understood... Something of the Redeemer's love set before you in uh, this morning in the supper. And then whatever is before us, we have grounds for rejoicing in the God of our salvation. The church's ultimate future is sure. Whether we live to see the great advance of the gospel or not. Throughout the world in our day or not in our day. Beyond that is the eternal world. And if we are His, our eternal place is in His kingdom, the kingdom of glory in heaven with Him. And He will rejoice in the God of His salvation. And so should all of you. The Lord has given us a whole Bible, more than Habakkuk ever had. A whole Bible complete with the accounting of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and His humiliation and exaltation in which He redeems His people all the works that our God did in redeeming us in and through Christ's blood and body sacrifice, If Habakkuk looking straight into the face of exile and captivity, then how much more have we all the more works of God revealed to us, having come and died and risen, exalted, how much more should we rejoice than Habakkuk? We have all the more reason, and all the more clarity of reason, all the more warrants and ground to rejoice. Whether things get better soon or not, and they go uh, far south, doesn't matter. What does he say? He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the hope of the people of God. Ultimately, the Lord's Supper tells us why it is sure. Sure. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Think of Habakkuk. What will separate him from the love of Christ, even Jehovah, in Christ? Will the exile, will Babylon, will the wickedness of Judah... Paul goes on in Romans 8, "...who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. For I am persuaded..." "...that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord." How could Paul say that? Obviously by the inspiration of the Lord. But how could he say that? Because he knew the Scriptures and what God had done. And what God will always be to His people. The Gospel is the cause for rejoicing. For the people of God in all times. Reason to bless the Lord at all times. Even in the dark and cloudy day. As well as in the day of gospel power. When the gospel goes forth in great uh, majesty and glory. And to many. And many believe. Jesus died to take away our sins. And so what more do we need for cause to rejoice? He took away all your sins. And the guilt of your sins we placed upon Him. What more do you need for cause to rejoice in the Lord, in the Lord of our salvation? Do we mourn the desolate state of the church today? We ought to. We ought to do it more, just like Habakkuk prayed, continually pleaded, continually cried out, Lord, it doesn't seem like you're answering. It doesn't seem like that. the Lord is answering today. Very much so. And yet, as sorrowful as that is, and the state of our nation, as sorrowful as that is, yet all God's people have reason and warrant to rejoice in the Lord. Looking to what He has done throughout all of the history of His church, for His people, even in Christ, being sacrificed for us as we celebrated and re-remembered His body broken, His blood shed all the reason in the world to rejoice in the Lord. Or we can say, though I fear, I will joy in the God of my salvation. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that You teach us Your ways, You teach us how we ought to conquer fear, or that we could still rejoice in the midst of fear. And Father, we pray that You would grant us A greater faith, a greater knowledge, understanding, and a recounting of what you have done. And so make us to be in your Word day and night, meditating upon it, reading your Word, considering it as we have vowed to do in our membership vows. Father, grant us to rejoice in the Lord always, in the God of our salvation always, and not be so disheartened unto perishing. My Father, lift us up even in the midst of great persecution or suffering and affliction and trouble, even in the midst of our grieving, and make us to grieve more. For we are a people who are very lukewarm and comfortable And Father, we do not grieve as we ought. We're not sorrowful over the state of the church and our nation as we ought to be. And Father, in these things, forgive us. But as we recount, not only the great deliverances that you have worked throughout history, but also in the great deliverance of salvation by Christ, your Son, from our sins. Father, cause us to rejoice in you. Rejoice in you Always. And just as you said, again, I say rejoice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.